All right. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Show of hands. Who is more towards being an optimist? Hands up. Who is more of a pessimist, glasses half empty person? <laughs> or you pessimist like, I'm putting up my hand, I'll get judged. Um, I, that video was interesting, and uh, you can probably tell it was made before 2020. I wonder what the answer would be now if they went around New York City. Now, uh, believe it or not, the Bible uh, actually will get us to be neither optimists or pessimists. Are you surprised? Neither optimists or pessimists. Um, I think the alternative the Bible gives is much better. As the author Craig Hamilton in his book Wisdom for Leadership says, um, the Bible gets us to be hoptimists. It's a, not a word that actually exists, but it's a, it's a nice alternative. Rather than just being eternal optimist or eternal pessimist, glasses half empty, half empty, half full, um, or just to be kind of flat realists, which tends to probably move you towards being a pessimist, for people of the Bible, followers of Jesus, that we can be hoptimists instead. And, and hope, by the way, when the Bible talks about hope, is not just wishful thinking like, I hope the weather is good tomorrow. No, hope in the Bible is tied to the firm and trustworthy promises of God. That's what hope is. Things that God has said will happen that have not yet happened, but because we trust God, we know they will happen. And so hoptimism, I hope you see, I hope you see, is more important now than ever, right? In 2020, 2021, we need a proper perspective on life, optimism now more than ever. Now, this relates very directly to Haggai chapter 2. Um, very quickly, we read it before, didn't we? Uh, three messages that Haggai gives on two days across a two-month period. Um, the first message is to everyone. The second message is to priests. The third message is to the governor, Zerubbabel. Um, but what Haggai 2 is trying to do, God is, through His Word, trying to help His people become optimists, And he's doing that because his people have experienced discouragement. And it's optimism in the promises of God that will get them through. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt like giving up. Have you ever felt like taking a back seat in your love and devotion to God or your love and service of other people? If that's you, then, well, Haggai 2 has the same core message to us. So let me pray and let's get into this part of the Bible. Father, thank you for showing us through your word in Haggai, your eternal word that never changes and is always relevant to us, how even in 2021 we might begin the year and set our hearts not on blind optimism, not on sad pessimism, but on optimism, trusting in your promises. So speak those promises afresh to us through your spirit. Amen. Uh, follow with me on your digital outlines. I've got an uh, outline there on the overhead as well. If you weren't here with us last week, you can catch up online. But a recap on chapter one of Haggai. There's only two chapters. This book really short. Um, okay, so it's 18 years after the world-shattering event. Um, the, the people of God had been exiled to Babylon, and then they came back 18 years before Haggai was uh, written. And this little remnant, this remainder that returned, well, began to look inwards. As we said last week, it was understandable. You'd just been through world-shattering events. Easy to look inwards. And so instead of rebuilding the house of God or the temple, they just rebuilt their own houses. And Haggai called on them last week to repent, right? To change that attitude, looking after their own rather than looking to God's priorities. And surprisingly, they did. 
They repented. They obeyed in a spirit of unity and what we would call an Old Testament example of revival. God gave them all this united desire to do what um, they were supposed to do. And so work began on the temple a few weeks after the first message in Haggai chapter 1. Now, Haggai 2, we are about a month after they started doing the, the, the rebuilding work. Now, a month later, you've got you to gotta picture this. It's, it's enough time for the reality of this huge undertaking to, take, to, to really sink in, all right? This is a huge project, the rebuilding of a temple. It's enough time for that to now sink in. And it's enough time for them to be sick of the initial hard work, which I imagine would have been just clearing out the rubble. So a month of just moving stones, clearing out the rubble, nothing much else, enough time for that to, to, get, really, to, get, to get really sick of that. It's enough time to get a little idea just a little of what kind of temple it might end up being. That, that is enough time to let the honeymoon period be over. And even as they imagine the new temple to realize hey, it's not going to be anything like the old one. I.e. this is enough time for discouragement to set in. And that is the context of chapter 2. So Haggai is speaking follow-up words to everyone. right? From the remnant, the people, to the leadership, from the priests, to the governor. Because, as I said, discouragement is setting in. Now, there's two sources of discouragement, uh, primarily, that Haggai refers to, and I think we can relate to them. Firstly, is comparison. Secondly, is fruitlessness. So let's have a look at the first one. Have your Bibles open on on your apps, and let me just read again the beginning of chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Now, I didn't mention it earlier, but actually 17 years before Haggai, so one year after they had initially returned, they made an attempt, actually, to rebuild the temple. There was an attempt to do that. But as they began building, rebuilding the temple 17 years earlier, this is what we read in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12. And you'll have to read the whole of chapter 3 to get the context, but just give, me one, just give you one verse. But as but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shout for joy, Okay. As they began to just put the first stones down 17 years earlier, a whole bunch of people wept. Why? Well, because the original temple by Solomon was so grand and so magnificent, we read in the book of 1 Kings, that it was said that gold was as common as silver, and silver was basically worthless. So this whole temple was like gold. Now, the exile happened 65 years ago. Now, that's a long time for those of us who are under the age of 65, but really, it is, old, it is long enough, or it's, sorry, it's, it's not too long that the oldest members of the people couldn't have remembered, right? If you, if you were a, a 15 years old at the time of the exile, you will have been in through your teenage years, you would have seen the old temple, um, and you would only be 80 years old, right? Many of our grandparents or parents maybe that age, and you'll remember what the old temple was like. And Solomon's temple was built with a huge labor force, artisans, craftsmen, engineers, slaves even. And he had the wealth of a kingdom at its height behind it. What do we have now, though? We have a group of returned exiles 
with no wealth, no resources, trying to get a new temple up with no workforce. I mean, there's no way that it will be even a fraction of the splendor of the old. And that's why the elders of, the, of Ezra's day, I mean, they, they didn't see a full temple. They saw a few stones being laid, but they wept because they remembered and they compared and they were discouraged. And we know that from experience. Like Comparisons can be a huge source of discouragement. Have you ever been discouraged because you're comparing. And I think for us, it's not just comparing backwards in terms of time, what used to happen to now. It's also now, I think, because of social media and connectedness, it's so easy to compare sideways, isn't it? Sometimes just going through your social media feeds is a discouragement. So I wonder what have you given up or been tempted to given up because of this kind of discouragement of comparison? Well, more discouragements came through that earlier attempt in Ezra 17 years ago. Because look at this next passage. This is how it ended up. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Right? 17 years would pass because this first attempt completely stalled. 17 years is not that long. Enough time to remember this is what happened the first time, remember, and that would have got them discouraged all over again. All right, so that's where we're up to in Haggai 2, the first discouragement from comparison. Second one, fruitlessness, right? Fruitlessness. I'll just put that up even though. Okay, Um, now we get there in verses 10 to 13, this kind of roundabout Q&A, you remember, Uh, between Haggai and the priest. Let me just read verse 10 onwards again. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat, that's holy, something that's made holy, consecrated, in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, other food, does that become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled that is made unholy or unclean by contact with a dead body, touches one of these things, does that become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Oh, seems like a funny little parable or Q&A. What is it all about? Well, the key is verse 14. Look at that. Verse 14. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Okay, so uncleanness, defilement, is more contagious than holiness, than cleanness. And the whole point of that is just for God to, well, through Haggai, to tell the priest, well, this explains why everything you did was pretty much fruitless, seemed like a waste of time. Uh, You see that illustrated, verses 15 onwards. Look, Look at verse 15. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. Verse 16, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, we saw some of that last week, right? We saw how um, they were in a time of deprivation. Things weren't happening. Harvests were bad. And, and we saw how that was actually discipline from God, getting them to try and, trying to get them to turn back to Him. 
Here we find the same situation, but God gives us a slightly different perspective. I mean, yes, it's discipline from God, but it's also because everything they did up till this point was, in the illustration with the priest, it's defiled, it's polluted, and that has a, a kind of a, an effect on everything they touched. So that's why they experienced no fruit. All right, so you've got those two discouragements, comparison of fruitlessness. And I want to turn the question back to you. Have you or are you experiencing discouragement for some of the same reasons, comparison and fruitlessness? And I especially focus on you in your service of God. In your service of God, in your leadership of people, if you're in that situation, leadership of others, groups, or your discipleship of others, your, your parenting, because that is the most important ministry for you parents, your marriage, because that is the most important ministry for you spouses, whatever it is, official or unofficial, in your service of God and others, have you become discouraged? And has it happened because of comparison and fruitlessness or some combination of those two? Can you think about seasons and times when things were so much easier when you compared it with how it used to be, whatever, church ministry or your marriage or you trying to reach out to non-Christians. And, but now you feel like no matter what you try, it's like pulling a cart through the mud. It's so hard to move. Things are just not happening. Fruit is not happening. Um, I don't know if you realize this, and I, 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 do re- I do know this as a pastor, that there are... Um, not in our situation because we don't own any property, but in denominations where basically churches have properties and properties can, and properties are houses as well as church property, um, there are a bunch of church properties that basically have all but died out in terms of their congregations. Just a few old people here and there. But um, they can rent out their church hall or there's enough giving from the congregation to just sustain a living expense and that the minister basically gets to live there for free. But there's a whole bunch of them all around the place just before the dying last breaths of churches. And the pastors basically don't want to do anything more to see their church grow or have given up trying to see their church grow. And they're just seeing out the rest of their ministry lives until retirement. Right? Do you know this happens more than you think? They, 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 they've got enough to live on. They're too old to change jobs. They've got enough to, you know, the next guy might not have a congregation, but I might have enough to keep going. Um, and I'm just going to see the rest of my life out until retirement. But I'm not going to try and grow the church because... I've tried that and it's failed. And basically discouragement has made, made them just sit back and just wait it out. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I used to really look down on people like that, being a pastor myself. But now, with about 20 years, in my, in 20 years of full-time ministry since I became a trainee, you know what? After taking quite a few hits... I now empathize with them, right? Because it's hard. Like, I get it. I get how you can be so discouraged that you just stop trying. And I wonder if this is you, not in terms of being a pastor, but if this is you in terms of your attitude towards how things are now. But you know, Haggai chapter 2, it doesn't mention these discouragements in order to keep us or the people of Haggai down. 
but really it's to lift our eyes to real hope. Because of last week, Haggai 1, remember, they obeyed, they feared the Lord, they started working on the temple. Because of that, Haggai 2's message is actually everything has changed. Everything is now different because the turning point has come. So we come to point number two um, on the overhead, promise. You see, to each type of discouragement, the Lord gives a personal word of assurance. And to each type of discouragement, the Lord gives a cosmic end-time promise, right? Both is going to happen. So let's look at the first type. He gives a word of personal assurance. Look at verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? That's a comparison. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But, verse 4, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Zerubbabel. Say that a hundred times. Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God's word here is drawing on lots of language from the past. Okay, when he says, be strong, it reminds us of his word to Joshua, not this Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, but Joshua who led the people to conquer the land after the Exodus. Be strong and courageous, same kind of language. And the reason, he says, it's because of his covenant uh, to his people during the time of the Exodus, when he gave them the Ten Commandments, when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people, I promise that. Now, it's, an, it's a really interesting that God should refer to that covenant. There are lots of covenants in the Bible, lots in the Old Testament. He refers to one of the covenants, a covenant is a formal agreement or promise. Right? As I said, there's lots of them in the Old Testament, but some of them are unconditional and some of them are conditional. So, for example, when God promised Abraham that he would have a descendants and he would be a blessing. That was an unconditional promise, right? God was going to give that to Abraham no matter what Abraham did. But the covenant at Exodus or the covenant at Mount Sinai, guess what? That was a conditional pro- uh, covenant. It was a covenant where God said, I will be your God, you will be my people, but you must obey me in order to remain my people. Now, we know from the history of the Old Testament what happened. Did they obey God? No. They broke the covenant. So really, the covenant at Sinai and Exodus has really been broken. God had no reason to keep that covenant, right? It's like one party in a marriage has walked out and filed divorce papers. The other party, right, has no reason, in fact, can't consider themselves still married. Well, here God says, It was like when I covenanted with you, I'm still with you. It's just amazing because he's saying, even though you guys have stuffed up that covenant, broke it, and even though that should have been the condition, I will now still love you and be with you unconditionally. Amazing. He'll still honor it. He's saying, I will be with you as much as I was with you when I brought you out of Egypt and I was in your midst by my Holy Spirit. Okay? That's an amazing promise. That's the first part. I will be with you. But also... Skip ahead to verse 18. What does he say there? Remember the context is, right, there's all these things that have gone wrong because all that they did were polluted and defiled. Verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Rhetorical question, no. Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But then this next bit. 
from this day on, I will bless you. All right. First part was, I will be with you. Second part is, I will now bless you. Everything has changed. They're no longer in that time of defilement where everything they touch is going to be dirt and defile. No, God is now going to bless them and he's going to be with them and everything they do will experience success. I've been watching a K-drama. Who's watched Startup? Yeah. Okay. My wife forced me to. I didn't really want to. No, it's been good. Okay. Um, the whole premise is you've got, uh, you know, basically tech company startups and I won't go into the love story because, you know, K-dramas is really not the premise. It's all about the love story. But um, anyway, um, imagine, uh, and you don't have to watch this to get this illustration. Imagine that you are like one of the um, companies in startup. Um, you have nothing. You're a, you're a group of broke developers. You have this idea. Um, you have no experience. You're trying to make it in, in, the, you know, in, the, in the corporate world. Um, but then all of a sudden, right? Like it is in this show. All of a sudden, you gain an opportunity. You have someone experienced become your mentor. You get investors who back you. And because you're no good at understanding how to run a company like that, someone else comes in to be your CEO who believes in you and is able to do a better job than you. And then everything changes from being a couple of broke college kids working in a garage to actually having a successful startup. That's a bit of what it's like when God says, I will now bless you. Everything that you did was trash, but now I'm with you. And so everything changes. All right? Okay, so that's the first part. There's a personal assurance, but it's also accompanied by big picture promises. Um, Here's a wonderful thing. The Bible kind of juggles both at the same time. God is your personal God who loves you like a father and a child, but he's also the Lord of the universe. And he has a plan for the whole cosmos, okay? It's not either or, it's both and. And here we see the cosmic stuff. So look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And remember, Lord Almighty, we saw last week, is Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, means everything. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations, probably a better translation and the uh, ESV as well as the CSB have, um, instead of what is desired by all nations is the treasures from all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater Then the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. See how many times Lord Almighty is used? One, two, three, four, five, by my count. One, two, three, four, five. Just in these short few verses, God is saying, remember who I am. I'm the God of armies. I'm the Lord of hosts, earthly and heavenly. This is how big I am, and this is what I'm going to do. There's a lovely little wordplay on the peace in the last bit I read. In this place, I will grant peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which is a wordplay on Jerusalem, right? There's a shalom bit in Yerushalayim, right? Jerusalem, as well as Solomon. His name also has the word shalom in it, both of which are tied to the temple. Temple was in Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple, right? God is saying all of these things are going to happen because of his cosmic promises, 
But it happens again, this idea of shaking the nation. So skip ahead to verse 20. Verse 20, we see the second time it's mentioned. This time he's speaking just to Zerubbabel. Right? The word of the Lord, verse 20, came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. A signet ring used by kings in the ancient world is like a royal seal, that is, they make official and weighty their letters and documents with a seal on it, you know it's from the king. So for a person to be a signet ring, God is saying, you're going to be the means by which I will rule. It's another metaphor for the Messiah, right? The chosen anointed king. Now that's also significant because of a bit of history. Don't turn to it, and I don't have it on the overhead, but if you want to take a note of it, Jeremiah 22, 24, Jeremiah 22, 24, believe it or not, God had said about Zerubbabel's grandfather, who was actually a king, one of the final kings of the kings of Judah. His name was Jehoiachin. In Jeremiah 22, 24, God had said about Zerubbabel's grandfather this. He says, I surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I will still pull you off. Because that was a rejection of the kingship of the Israelite kings at that time. But you see what God is doing now? He's reversing that, right, with Zerubbabel, these promises. Okay, so um, there's so much more I could say about them, but you see how cosmic these are, right? These are huge promises, shaking earth and heavens and, 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 and changing up world order and nations. Now, some of these would be fulfilled in the near future to Haggai and his audience, some of them. The temple, as I said last week, was miraculously almost rebuilt in just five years. That's pretty amazing. And in fact, in a remarkable turn of events, the treasures of the nations did come to them. Like they had no resources, but believe it or not, King Darius actually helped. He actually provided material resources for them, which you can only say is because of God and his promises. Amazing. But you need to know that the majority of these promises would not see the light of day, not in Haggai's time. I mean, when the temple went up, it was only a shadow of the first temple. And it was not more glorious than the first temple, the second temple. It was certainly not the kind of place where these promises talked about, you know, almost like the nations would, would see it and, and be overturned or that they would attract the nations and his glory would be like a magnet. That didn't happen. Zerubbabel was never more than a governor. He was certainly never able to become a king and the Messiah king as prophesied by other places of the Old Testament. You see, the remnant of Haggai's day, they had to wait. They would die without seeing most of these promises come true. But you see, God gave them this word so that they had reason to hope, even as they wait. Because the Lord had renewed his promises to be with them. He would now bless them again. He would bring about cosmic purposes for them, even if it doesn't all happen in their lifetime, the temple would somehow be the place of glory. Their Messiah King from the line of Zerubbabel will come one day. They didn't see it, but it didn't matter 
right? Because here's a challenge to us as well. To every age where God's people have lived and to us today as God's people, if you're a follower of Jesus, the challenge is this. Will you live out of your experience or will you live out of promise? You got that? Will you live out of experience what has happened, what you think could happen, based on what you've experienced, and you know, often because of that you'll be a pessimist or an optimist? Will you live out of that and only see possibilities that come out of your experience? Or, here's the alternative, will you live out of promise from every word that comes from the mouth of God? So it's on to my final point, fulfillment. God's promise to be with us, to bless us, ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. No surprises there. Jesus, when he comes as the Messiah, as the King, lives the life we couldn't live, but lived for us. He died the death we deserve to die in our place. He rose again from the dead. He went back to heaven to reign. He pours out his Holy Spirit. All of those events 2,000 or so years ago, that is the fulfillment of God being present with his people to bless us in a way that people in the Old Testament could not have imagined God is present with his people to bless us in a way that you could not even imagine. The New Testament says the prophets longed to see that day. Now, remember in Haggai, this turn of events happened because the people in Haggai 1 obeyed. And then everything was turned around. Well, how is it that we see that turnaround in Jesus? Well, guess what? It's not because we obeyed. The Bible says that while we were still sinners... Jesus came to die for us. You see, it's not our obedience that turns everything around. It's Jesus' obedience that turns everything around. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know this. Christianity, and then uh, Melissa talked about it at the beginning, you, Christianity is not about you making your life better, then you can come to God to receive His presence and His blessing. No, it's not about that at all. You can't work yourself to be good enough to earn God's blessing. No, Jesus came to be good enough in our place. His obedience, his perfect obedience can be yours when you put your trust in him. And that's the only way that we can experience God's presence and blessing. Not your obedience, his obedience. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, will you turn your life to him, trusting in him to become your source of blessing? And then, as I said, Jesus is the Messiah, the real Messiah, the son of David, son of Zerubbabel, a few generations later, 14 or so. He's the true signet ring. He's the Messiah king. He's the anointed one. And he does upend all earthly rule, right? The, the, the whole idea of the nations being shaken, everything turned upside down. By the way, it's not being fulfilled in military conquest. Christianity has never been about military conquest or violence. Shame on those who had Jesus banners and storm the capital. They don't represent Jesus. Christianity is about a kingdom that is an upside-down kingdom. People are won over, nations are converted. How? By hearts being changed through the Holy Spirit to trust and serve Jesus. It's an upside-down kingdom. And guess what? 
If you're a people of God, followers of Jesus, we are co-opted into this shaking of the nations in order that the offerings and the treasures of the nations might be brought to God. Right? The treasures of the nations, spoke about Haggai, we're involved in that. And guess what the treasures of the nations is? It's not gold or silver. It's not the physical rebuilding of Jerusalem or temple. No, no, no. Guess what it is? The offerings, the treasures of the nations are the nations themselves. You got that? The nations themselves, people from all nations coming to bow before Jesus, that is the treasure of the nations. And that's already happening all around the world. The gospel is going out in the nations. Revelation 21 pictures the end when all of this is fulfilled. It says, the nations will walk by its light. This is the new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gaze ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Right, the nations themselves, people of all languages, color, background, coming in to worship Jesus on the last day. That is the treasure of the nations. And that is what God has promised. And that is what we're involved in. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Instead, as God said right at the beginning in verse 4, he says, remember, be strong. He says it like three times, be strong, be strong, be strong. And then he says, be strong and work. If this is all true, then be strong and work. And I'm going to apply that in two more specific ways to us in reverse order. So let's firstly talk about work. Here's the first application. Go all out for God's work. Especially at the beginning of the year. Go all out. For God's work. Now, what is God's work? Well, we already said it, right? It's as people come under his loving rule. As people turn their lives to Jesus, that is God's work. That is the work of the kingdom of God. Now, for some of you, that can be through and in your paid secular jobs. You might be in those particular industries or the People like me with the privilege of doing this full-time, but not even, I mean, you might uh, be in jobs that particularly are, you're able to help people come to know Jesus in and through your paid work. But most of you, and by most I mean a vast majority, it's not going to be through your paid secular work. All right? It's not. God's work is going to be, for most of us, outside of our paid secular jobs. But that's good because it now includes those of you who are not in paid secular work or do a lot of work outside of paid secular work. Like those of you who are mums, maybe for a season, maybe now, or those of you who are retired, or those of you who are between jobs looking for employment, or those of you who are students. Guess what? You can be doing God's work. And dare I say, more significant work than the work that you might be doing being paid for outside of it. All right? God's work is any work that is dedicated towards growing his kingdom. And it's not just at church, it's also in the home. No matter what success you have in your paid secular job, you cannot bring that with you to heaven. You can bring people with you to heaven. All right? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, said C.T. Studd. Now, not many of you know this about me, but when I was 17 years old, my older sister was 18. She became my legal guardian. 
because my parents moved back overseas to Taiwan to work. And so basically from the age of 17, I was um, doing my HSC in year 12. Uh, we didn't have any family. It's just my sister, older sister and I. Uh, but a lovely couple from my old church, um, their names were Bruce and Hillary Lynn, uh, Uncle Bruce and Auntie Hillary, I called them. Um, we didn't spend one Christmas alone or summer holidays having nothing to do because we were over at their house all the time. They just had an open home policy. Uh, I remember this time um, after I did my HSC, so some of you just finished HSC, uh, around this time in January, uh, in, in what would have been my first year of uni, I probably spent every day at their house, just hanging out with them. Christmases, we would be with their family because my parents weren't able to come back during Christmas, and there would be them, and they had five kids, um, all older than us, extended family, welcomed us right into the heart of their family. Um, I want to talk about them because only two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago, um, uh, I was at their funeral in the most tragic events that happened at the end of last year, um, Uncle Bruce passed away, and then 12 days later, Auntie Hillary passed away, unrelated, but um, it's just during COVID, it was such a tragic time because of their family, some of whom were overseas, had to now come back all of a sudden. What turned out to be one COVID uh, funeral had to become a double COVID funeral. It was, in, in all respects, could have been just such a sad funeral, but you know what it wasn't? Because as I sat there and I heard the people that came up and spoke about Uncle Bruce and Auntie Hillary, I realized that ours was not the only family that experienced their hospitality. There were generations of adopted children. Right? They have five kids of their own, right? Remember? It's not like they didn't have any kids. But there are generations of international students, uh, orphans like us, orphans in inverted commas, people who just kept coming in and out of their homes, who'd been blessed by them. Do you know, when I... Um, Got my HSC results, my parents weren't around, but um, Annie Hillary asked me what I got, and I, and I told her she was the first person to give me a big hug and say, I'm so proud of you. She's like a second mom to me. But she didn't just do this to us, and that's my point. They impacted so many people. Uncle Bruce, by the way, um, he was a champion and advocate um, of all these Christian ministries um, uh, to serve and support them. By the way, he, I'm mentioning them also because they're not pastors. Bruce and Hillary weren't pastors. They were not in full-time ministry, all right? They were lay people um, in your church, but he was involved in everything, um, youth ministry, uh, Bible college ministries. He was on the, you know, helping to support the Katoomba conferences. Um, he was part of church plants. He was an elder of his church. Hillary, um, she's less, uh, she's more of the background person, so she was the one who opened up her home, um, generous with her time. She would cook for church camps. Um, with lots of youth, just gave us lots of love. Uh, and, and, you know, at the funeral, people got up and just spoke about how much they were impacted. Just, again, more, just generations of youth were impacted um, by them, and people were welcomed into their home. Now, I mentioned them because I want you to know um, that it's people like them, not the people you see who are the pastors, the speakers. The, it's people like them who've given their lives for God's work. They went all out, and they didn't stop until the day they passed away and were, you know, were taken to, to glory. But the, the legacy that they left and the impact that they had on people like me and countless others, well, that's the kind of thing you can be part of. So go all out for God's work. You don't have to be 
in full-time ministry. You don't have to have an official leadership position. Go all out for God's work. But the second one I want to tell you about is to do so with courage, right? Remember, be strong and work. You're going to need courage because discouragements will come and you'll need to push through. And this particularly is not the time for God's people, the church, in this time of our world to settle for mediocrity. We all need to be taking bold steps. And now I know that's going to be different for different people. All right? And not even all of you are going to be like an Uncle Bruce or Auntie Hillary. So you've got to figure out what is God's call on your life and what does it mean to take a bold step even in the coming year? Maybe it's to invest in a relationship with a person who's not a follower of Jesus and actually take that bold step of, of inviting them to hear about Jesus through, con- through our invitation month. Some other means, I don't really know, but is it that? For some of you, it's going to be, okay, you need to actually step out to really help yourself grow. No longer sitting back, waiting for others to feed you. How are you going to grow this year? Maybe you've just sat back and let other people serve you. How are you going to serve in your church community this year? Yes, it's scary. I've never done something like that. Well, take a step and be courageous and try in order that you might go all out. For some of you, it's going to be with your family. How are you going to keep on loving your spouse, your kids, leading them to love and serve Jesus? For others of you, it's going to be discipling just one other person, walking with one other person to help mature them. Maybe they're a new Christian. I don't know, right? Whatever it is, This is the time to think, how am I going to go all out for God's work in a way that's bold and courageous? And by the way, there's some of you here, maybe because of discouragement, you used to have some sort of ministry dream or gospel ambition, but you've kind of tucked it away now. Or maybe this is your time for God to say to you, revive it. Take that ministry dream you had. Take that idea you had that you tried, maybe gave up on, and in 2021, prayerfully revive it. Because we don't live out of experience, we live out of promise. Let me just give you one final passage before I close up. It's the New Testament equivalent of Haggai 2, I reckon. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, be strong. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, all right? Make this year, make this life count. Make it about what God is doing. Live in the realm of promises. In other words, be a hope to mist. Let's get ready to sing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that through your Spirit who takes words and makes them alive, that you might be speaking to every heart here, in person or watching online, that you may rouse your church like you did in Haggai 1, bring us a spirit of unity and revival so that we would go out and go all out for your work, your bringing of the treasures of the nations, because there's so much work to do. And we would do so boldly and persistently and courageously and prayerfully. And we do so in all the little and big realms that you've put us in. Please help us, Lord. We need you so that all the nations might turn to Christ and glorify him. 
Amén.